You've been listening to the weekly sermon from the Vine Church in Madison, Wisconsin, a spirit-filled family that makes disciples and plants churches among neighbors and nations through declaration and demonstration. For more information and service times, check out our website at www.thevinemadison.org. Well, uh, good morning, Vine family. Uh, it's good to be with you. Uh, some of you don't know me. Uh, Ten summers ago, uh, my wife, three kids, and myself, we were privileged to be a part of the first few years of the Vine planting. And then, of course, four years later, God was gracious, and we were sent out from the Vine with a core team with the Johnsons to plant Redeemer City. And so um, it's just always good to be with you, even if it's virtually. Um, honestly, every time I get a privilege to be here, um, there's just two things that well up. One, just a deep love for you, uh, love this community. And then secondly, just a deep gratitude, because you've been such a blessing to our family, uh, to our church, and obviously to this city. Well, as we uh, continue our series in this life of prayer, um, we direct our attention to actually what is the most common type of prayer in the Psalms. And yet, in my own experience, my own life, and I think collectively, I would say this about many of us, this is honestly the one that we are perhaps least familiar with. The type of prayer that I'm talking about is lament. Uh, Eugene Peterson, uh, a pastor, summarizes this so well when he describes the purpose of lament. He says this, lament enables us to honestly face and courageously live through all that we don't like and don't understand. Let me say that again. It's, it's so well stated. Lament enables us to honestly face and courageously live through all that we don't like and don't understand. You know, consider just for a moment how relevant this is to our community. It was mentioned just a moment ago by James um, this past Tuesday. Gun violence striking down 11-year-old Anissa Scott. What do you, what do, you do with that? I'm sure like many of you um, this week, thoughts and prayers directed at that family, at our community. How do you face circumstances and situations like this? But, but even if it's not that, consider your own life. One author writes this, that when relationships go sour, when feelings of futility come flooding, when it feels like life is passing us by, when a family member betrays us, when we feel deeply misunderstood, when we are laughed at by those who are imp- impressive. Or let me just add one thing. What, what, what do you do when you're living through a global pandemic? In other words, how do you and, honest, how do you and I honestly face, courageously and honestly, through all that we don't like and don't understand. And here's the deal. The Psalms give us a form of prayer for those times, and it's lament. And Psalm 13 is one of those prayers in the book of Psalms that teaches us how to pray in times like these. And so we're going to see three things about lamenting. The first is this. We're going to see that lament calls us to protest honestly, Secondly, to petition fulsomely. And then thirdly, to praise expectantly. So with that said, let me pray before we get in here and and we'll continue on. Let's pray. Father, we uh, 
give you thanks for your word this morning. And Lord, just pray that the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts, would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, protesting honestly, that's how Psalm 13 begins. And before we even step in there for a moment, I just need to say this, that Psalm 13 debunks a common myth. And it's simply this, if I truly, deeply follow God, everything in my life will go well. It's interesting, you know, verses 1 and 2 open and there's a full range of problems happening in the life of the psalmist. Verse 1 says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? There's this theological problem right off the bat. The psalmist is feeling abandoned by God. You know, God is like that friend you keep on texting that won't text you back. But secondly, in verse 2, it says, How long must I take counsel in my soul? And this is the language of, of, of the inward heart of anxious thoughts and painful questions, the what-ifs, the real, the imaginary threats that are being against our lives. And the inward part of our heart is just tortured. That's what's happening here. And then at the end of verse 2, we have, How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? There is a foe. There is someone who is opposing us. One commentator wrote this. He said, Whoever devises from the Scriptures a philosophy in which everything turns out right has to begin by tearing this page out of the volume. Um, You know what's interesting about Psalm 13? It not only debunks the myth that everything in life goes well if you just deeply, truly follow God, it actually normalizes the experience that oftentimes life doesn't go so well. You know, if I could just, for a moment, just zero in on one of these aspects. Again, going back to verse 1, when it says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? The, The psalmist is feeling abandoned by God. And see, some of us, we think if we really believed God's promises, we wouldn't feel this way, right? Some of us think if we were really mature in our faith, we wouldn't speak this way. Yet this is how the psalmist speaks. It means this. And this is very important. Not knowing where God is in a particular situation is not abnormal in this broken world. So, if that's true, if that's true, if if a commitment to Jesus will not guarantee your best life now, if it's true that you're going to have theological problems, you're going to have times where you feel abandoned by God, when you're going to have inward turmoil, when you're going to have people in situations that oppose you, how do we respond? And, and the short answer is, Psalm 13 gives us, is to protest honestly. Four times in two verses, there are two words. And it's these words, how long? How long? How long? How long? 
And here's the deal. The first time you hear these two words by themselves, all I can picture is, you know, the, the road trip with the family and the kids in the back, they're saying, how long? And if you know that trip, you know those words being spoken are not uh, compliant. They're not like, hey, Dad, how long till we get there? No, they're one of complaint. They're one of protest. I want to get there now. I want out of these circumstances. And one commentator noted this, that this is not only is complaint tolerated by God, but it is the proper stance of a person who takes God seriously. You know, I think oftentimes when we think about following Jesus, we have been told that in circumstances that are painful, that to trust God means to be stoic. It means to be compliant. It means to suck it up, to grin and bear it, to be agreeable. And yet here, right in, verse thir- in, in chapter 13 of the Psalms, we have someone who is honestly reckoning with their circumstances, with things they do not like and things they do not understand, and they are honestly protesting. And we need to make an important distinction for a moment, because if you go back, for example, in the Old Testament, when Israel is in the desert, if you remember this story, they're lacking food, they're lacking water, they've just been rescued, and what do they do? They grumble. They complain. And we have to ask the moment, for, for a moment the question of what's the difference? What, is it, what does it mean to grumble? And what does it mean to lament? What's the difference between Psalm 13 and grumbling? And here's what it is. Grumbling is complaining about God. Lamenting is complaining to God. Let me say that again. Grumbling is complaining about God. Lamenting is complaining to God. And Derek Kidner in his commentary, writing about the nature of Scripture, it's God-breathed, the very presence of verses like 1 and 2, he writes this, that the very presence of such prayers in Scripture is a witness to his understanding that he knows how men and women speak when they are desperate. Do you, do you hear that invitation this morning? The very nature of the fact that these verses are in there, it means God's inviting you to protest honestly. Listen, if, if we're going to face life and we're going to have problems, of all things we do not like and do not understand, it begins here. It begins by turning all of our doubts and our anxieties into an honest protest to the Lord. But it doesn't stop there. The second thing in Psalm 13 is it calls us to petition fulsomely. You know, um, Verses 3 and 4, it's, it's petition. It's asking the Lord for help. But one of the things that's so unique about this section is it actually addresses every aspect of the trouble the psalmist has already brought up in verses 1 and 2. So at the beginning of verse 3, the psalmist writes and says, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. In other words, the psalmist is saying, Stop hiding from me. Pay attention to me. You're my God. And then secondly, in verse 3, the psalmist writes, Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. 
That prayer is a prayer directed to the inward turmoil of the soul, the sorrow and the counsel and the doubts and the anxieties that are torturing the soul. Light up my eyes. It's It's this image of If you were like a room that has windows on all sides, but the shades are drawn and the light is not in, it's a dark place. And it's asking for the Lord to open the windows, to open the shades, and to shine light and to bring renewal in the very deepest part of their life. And then verse 4, lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Uh, evil is winning. Evil has power, and the psalmist is praying for vindication. And notice Psalm 13 teaches us to pray and petition not partially, not just one aspect that we're facing, but in the whole fully orbed aspect. It's to petition fulsomely. And here's what's remarkable. All of this is rooted in who God is in this passage. It's, it's really summarized so well in verse 3 when, when the psalmist writes, O Lord, my God. You know, Lord, it goes, it's, it's that covenant name Yahweh, that God, the God who had rescued Israel out of Egypt. But he's also personal. He's my God. And see, here's what's remarkable about this. The audacity to pray like this, to petition not just partially, but fulsomely in every aspect of life that you face that you do not like and you do not understand, is this profound notion that you and I matter to God. Let me say that again. That you and I matter to God. The laments invite us to bring the full range, not just partially, the full range of all that we don't like and all that we do not understand, and to ask Him for assistance. Thirdly, and lastly, Psalm 13 teaches us to praise expectantly. And when you've been reading through the first four verses of Psalm 13, you come to verses 5 and 6, and they're both stunning and they're disorienting. Listen again to verses 5 and 6. He writes, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. It's stunning because in the midst of the agony of all that we do not like and understand, erupts this language of adoration, of trust and hope. The psalmist says, I have trusted. It says, my heart shall rejoice. It says, I will sing. But it's also disorienting. You know, because one might think that this eruption of adoration is coming on the heels of the answers that have been given by the Lord in response to verses 3 and 4. But here's the problem. Commentators know that this isn't the case, necessarily. Um, There are other psalms that are tied specifically to events. For example, in the life of David, you go to Psalm 18, it's being rescued from Saul. You can go to that story in the Bible, you can see how God answered it. But Psalm 13 isn't tied to anything historically in in, in that realm. And here's what that means. It means the response of adoration, of praise of trust and hope is not necessarily 
tied to the removal of the agony. And therein lies the tension. This psalm, this lament, holds those two things together, agony and adoration. And the question has to be this, how do, you, uh, how do you do that? How would I ever praise expectantly when I'm feeling abandoned by God? How would I praise expectantly when the inward part of my soul is being racked by the what-ifs of life or the what-could-have-been? How do I praise expectantly, have trust and hope when the enemy is still there opposing me? And Psalm 13 says you need to know at least two things to do this. And the first is this. You've got to know of a love that knows you to the very depth of your being and a love that will not let you go. Uh, In verse 5, it says, I have trusted in your steadfast love. This This love, this steadfast love, is characterized by this relationship between Israel and God in the Old Testament. And if you read through the Old Testament, you'll see this over and over again. Israel keeps on failing, and yet God keeps showing up. This is not a sappy love that's just there on the good days and not on the bad days. This is a love that sticks with someone through the ups and the downs. In other words, the reason why the psalmist can trust and therefore praise expectantly is because there is a God who has demonstrated a love that will not fail even when we fail. But secondly, you've got to know of a salvation that is big enough to restore all that you might lose in this world. In verse 5, The psalmist says, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. You know, salvation is the word for rescue. And then think for a moment what this is saying. That the psalmist is saying, my heart shall rejoice because you can rescue me from being abandoned by God. My my heart can rejoice because you can actually rescue me from the deep inward turmoil in my soul. The psalm is saying, I can rejoice because you can rescue me from anything that opposes me. And the question has to be, right, where is that kind of love that will never leave you when you fail him? And where is that kind of salvation that can rescue you from that fully orbed reality of a broken world found? And you know this, at least I'm sure many of you do, that this looks forward to a greater salvation, Psalm 13 does, found in Jesus. This is, this is the center of our faith, right? This is what Christians believe, that God in the flesh came down. He lived among us. That He died for us, for our sins, and He suffered for us, but He also suffered with us. And the Scriptures teach that He rose from the dead And he promises to come again and renew all things. This is the kind of love that we're speaking of here that will never leave you. This is the kind of salvation that whatever you face and lose in this life in a broken world, he promises to repair and restore. 
This is the tension of agony and adoration. It's all fixed right here in the gospel. To protest honestly, to, to petition fulsomely, and lastly, to praise expectantly is all held in tension in the gospel. In the fourth century, uh, there's a grieving woman named Sapida, and her brother Timothy had, had died. He was serving as a deacon in the church at Carthage under the dark-skinned African bishop Augustine. And Augustine wrote her these words, It is, of course, reason for tears that you no longer see as you once did your loving brother, a deacon of the church of Carthage, coming and going, busy with the work of ministry in the church. When one thinks of these things, one must do violence to one's feelings. One's heart is pierced, and the tears of one's heart flow like blood. Notice how Augustine just dives right into the agony addresses it head on. But then he says this, let your heart be lifted up and your eyes will be dry for the love by which Timothy loved and loved Sapida has not perished. That love remains preserved in its repository and is hidden with Christ in the Lord who is willing to die for us so that we might live. And here's how he closes. And you got to hear this. This is so helpful. Speaking about this hope in Christ, he says, who can restore what has been lost, bring to life what has died, repair what has been corrupted, and keep thereafter without end what has come to an end. How do you and I face all that we do not like and do not understand this world the reason you can protest honestly, petition fulsomely, and praise expectantly is because there is a love that remains in Christ who can restore what has been lost, bring to life what has died, repair what has been corrupted, and be kept thereafter without end what has come to an end. And this is why the psalm can end with this, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and we are slow to learn. It is, it is hard to trust you. It's hard to trust you in the midst of this world. It's hard to trust you in the midst of a broken world. It's hard to trust you in the midst of all the things we do not like and we do not understand. And yet, Lord, you give us these words. And, Lord, we know when we get to verse 4 and we're petitioning fulsomely, we know as soon as we turn the corner to verse 5, our hearts may not be there. Uh, but, Lord, we pray as we learn this type of prayer, as we learn to trust you in the midst of the very moments we are in, that you would meet us there, that we would know that your love is a steadfast love in the midst of our doubts, the midst of our anxieties, that your love remains. Lord, in the midst of all that we lose and we've lost and we, we long for in this world, 
Would we, would we be reminded by the hope that we have in what is to come, that you can keep thereafter what is to the end and the safe deposit that is found in your Son, Jesus. And we ask this all in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.